This is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. We will be talking with Elizabeth Anglin, an author who wrote the book Experience, Memoirs of an Abducted Childhood, and this was published back in 2014. Uh, This book is the story of a girl growing up in Michigan and how she tries to make sense of some very troubling experiences. Uh, This book begins, the first story in the book begins, uh, she's around three, and it ends when she's 24. Now, it culminates with her meeting Dr. John Mack in Boston in 1990. Elizabeth was the second person to meet with Dr. Mack uh, in his work with the UFO experiencers. So she was there very early on. Uh, This book is going to be part of a trilogy. Oh, actually, we talked a little bit about that during the, the interview. And and that might not happen. The second and third part of what might have been a trilogy uh, will probably be put together in one volume. And that second book will address her work with Dr. Mack over those years. So Elizabeth had like a front row seat of a very important chapter of the history of how UFO contact is being researched or has been researched, uh, having worked with Dr. Mack. And and despite some of the dark qualities of the book, uh, this was a pretty fun interview. We both laughed a little bit. I uh, actually laughed a lot. This interview is just a little bit over an hour long. Members get to listen to it commercial-free, the entire thing, and non-members can only listen to the first half hour, and you'll get a few commercials in there, too. This interview was recorded in February of 2019. Please enjoy. Elizabeth, thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. No problem. I'm always happy to talk to you. You're one of the best interviewers I know, so it's a joy. Well, I haven't done this. I feel a little rusty in the interview part. Um, The last time we talked was for my book project, And uh, now we are talking about your book project. And your book is titled Experience, Memoirs of an Abducted Childhood. And this is the first part of a trilogy. And it takes you from about age three to about age 24, I think. So that's about 21 years of time that this book spans. And it tells of your youth growing up in Michigan. Now, I also grew up in Michigan, so I could tap into a lot of that. We're... I'm a little bit older than you, but enough that I could I really resonated with all the all the driving around and just the weather you were describing and such like that. But um this was a tough story. I mean, this story has two sides of it. Some parts are very uplifting. And there's some very troubling dark stuff here. I mean, you were talking about fears and um it feels like even in the culmination of the book, you were just barely starting to come to terms with your experiences as as a 24-year-old. Uh, yeah, I was only waking up to them, coming to terms in terms of waking up, not coming to terms in terms of this is part of your life. This is, this is uh, who you are. 
um, this is your story. Um, what is my story? Who am I? What am I doing here? Why is all of this happening? Am I crazy? Am I not crazy? Um, couldn't I just be normal? Couldn't I just have a normal life? Well, what's this new stuff that's happening now? So I am in very many ways that the quintessential alien abductee that has trauma that Dr. Mack wrote about in that I, you know, uh, you first, you have the worldview trauma, the ontological shock of what you think is happening in the world, what you've been told all your life is happening in the world is not. And then you find out just how much of that worldview is, is way, way, way off a base of what reality is. Um, Not that, you know, there aren't multiple facets of reality. It's just, there's so much more to reality and we are just mainly in society and then how we raise our kids and what we teach in schools and what we talk about in terms of religious understanding is a very, very small part of what's actually uh, happening here. Yeah. Don't I know it? Yes. In fact, that's, uh, you know, so I feel like I've gone through that same process. I mean, for me, it felt like something needed to crumble, crumble away, and then something else needed to be reborn. Yeah, it's a, you go through a death of your worldview in this, which is, is actually more painful in, in its own way than realizing that you've been abducted by aliens or if you're my labs uh, or both, you've been abducted by the military. You know, that's kind of like, oh, well, I survived that. You know, if you have a good person that works with you, you go, okay, that happened and I survived it and you're okay with that. But your worldview crumbling away and having things happen like your relationships with people who can't go where you're going, don't even have a capacity to step into it, even a toe fall away. And so you have the grieving of, of the loss of, of relationships, not because they have to believe what you believe, but because they can't even go part of the way there with you. That's really hard. Yeah, the analogy of grieving is perfect. I mean, an old life falls away and a new life is reborn, hopefully, and hopefully that new life can be a better life and a richer life. And, and I certainly have a different outlook on, on what reality means than I did at one point. It is, it has changed in a way that I never, ever would have expected. Um, now here, before we get into this, you are also doing, you're an animal communicator. You do psychic readings. You do Akashic record readings and past life uh, readings and Reiki sessions. And I mean, I look at that list there and I consider all of those sort of um, healing modalities. Hmm, no, they're actually very specific thought modalities. Yeah, it's it's how you use your mind and your consciousness. Um, and feelings are involved because it, they involve clairsentience, which is clear feeling and so um, clear empathy. But I've been doing medical and veterinary intuition since 1994 um, remote viewing since 96, 97 and spirit mediumship and all of the sort of thought arts that require telepathy and connection with people and animals. Um, but it's really that, that sixth sense and how it works with the brain using that in a very skillful way so that I'm not just getting one little part of a message. I'm going to different levels for the, the physical body level, the, the pathophysiology level, the emotional level, 
the past life level, the, the uh, parallel reality level. Um, there are all these places that we exist uh, simultaneously in the now of consciousness that end up affecting us while we're walking through the world. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I do a lot of sort of looking around at everything now, and it's incredibly fun and rewarding, but also informative. I, I don't think I would trade that for much. Now, no, the, so the 23-year-old the self, the 23-year-old Elizabeth that the book ends with, was, was this on her radar at all, these skills? The skills were, um, they were in childhood, um, but she didn't know, she didn't know how psychic she was. She was, you know, her grandparents identified it, her grandfather, who didn't have that belief system, but he noticed it. My father's mother had a psychic mother, and my father was psychic, but not to the extent that I was. Like, I could walk into any test and ace it nearly. I mean, I got through honors at the 12th best public school in the U.S. by being psychic <laughs> honors courses, you know, <laughs> and I look back on all the stuff I did in high school, you know, just having a jam-packed schedule and barely ever cracking a book. And the only thing I had trouble with was math because you actually had to do it. You had to yeah. solve the problem and show your work. <laughs> but otherwise, I'd just be sitting there looking at the page going, oh, yeah, that's obviously right. Oh, yeah, that's obviously right. Oh, yeah, that's obviously right. And then I get out into the rest of the world and I'm like, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. I should have studied at least a little bit, right? No, it was it was not. It was being in this deep, deep denial that um, society really forced me into when I got older and I got out of the denial, I was like, oh, that's what claircognizance is. That's how that feels. Oh, clairsentient, that feeling I have when I'm around somebody who doesn't feel good and then I don't feel good. That's, that's what that is. Clairsomaticism. Oh, somebody has a broken leg and I feel like I have a broken leg. Oh, that's what that is. Um, all of these things became clear in my 20s right after I woke up and started working with Dr. Mack and meeting other people with the same skills and abilities who were also abductees. And I want to talk a little bit about Dr. Mack, but before we go there, there was one story in the book, we talked about this briefly earlier, that I thought was so powerful and so beautiful, and I would love it if you could share that here. It was a story about, I mean, you were basically going to say goodbye to your horse, Poco. Yes. Um, so I had a very, this is the dark before the dawn. Um, my mother had a lot of problems with my abductions, but she also had her own problems. Uh, I'm quite sure she was a medium who was, she was in denial of spirit in general, that there was such a thing as spirit. She was incredibly psychic herself, we found out later on. Um, but she she was just attacking me all the time and I was 14 years old and, and basically everybody was trying to find a situation where I could stay away from home and it got to be winter and I was just turning 14 and I had been abducted and I had this terrible migraine that lasted for a few days. My mom was haranguing on me. And I just wanted to commit euthanasia. And my mom had kept saying, she said, telling, you know, the world, you're the devil's spawn or whatever, but they don't believe in the devil. So you're every other kind of bad. 
I decided to euthanize myself. I decided to commit suicide. And I decided to do it in a particularly grisly way, which was to take this very large knife we had for chopping kindling and do hairy carry and bleed out in back of the barn. But it was 20 below zero. It was January in Michigan. And I said, well, it would be very unfair of me to leave the horses out. So I will put the horses up before I do this. And my parents can find me in the morning behind the barn, frozen to the ground in a pool of blood because they suck. And my life is terrible and I'm in pain. And I really want to make a statement that this is all a bunch of BS and I'm out of here. So I went to the barn with a big old knife and I went to bring the horses in. And my horse Poco, his name is Poco Johan, but it's Poco in the book. Um, I had several horses, but he comes up and instead of walking into the stall, he stops and he puts his forehead over my heart. So where your third eye would be as a human being, he puts his forehead right on top of my heart and he knickers really low. And I just feel this upwelling of love from him, love and concern. And I'm like telling him, oh, Joe, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to see you again. And you've been such a good horse. And the next minute, and the next minute I hear this really stern voice that didn't have a gender saying, look at this. This horse is a better being than you are. Notice how he takes the time to stop and comfort you even while he is in terrible pain. And I look down right around that time and I see that his chest has been cut open. And this isn't a hallucination. This actually happened. He's, he's comforting me, but down below, which I haven't noticed, is his chest is cut open. And it's cut open in a triangle shape in, a, in two straight lines. And the skin flap is pulled back. And it, rather than bleeding out, you can see the heart underneath the muscles of the chest beating where the skin flap is pulled back. And because it's so cold, all the flesh has frozen, so he hasn't bled out from the wound. All of the upper muscular flesh is frozen back together because it was just so cold. And I'm watching his heart beat in his chest. And, and, he's, and he's just sticking his head against my heart and nickering softly and being very gentle. And then the next thing it says, you know, notice how he takes the time to stop and comfort you even while he's in pain. Notice that he has the will to survive in spite of his pain. And so it, it, to me, that just that was that was the dawn. That was the wake up. Um, and the voice also said, you know, you've got to basically get it together because you're chosen. You're here for a purpose and you need to get on with your purpose. And I like went, you know, the kind of thing where Jenga, you know, <laughs> everything falls into place. And I decided, well, I guess I won't commit suicide and euthanize myself tonight. I got to go call the vet right now. And um, I ran into the house and I called the vet. And the vet was absolutely perplexed when he looked at the wound because it was a perfect straight line. Everything that had been done was done with this incredible, what he called amazing surgical skill that even he couldn't do under the best of situations. And it looked like the wound had been cauterized. So even he with his tools couldn't have made such straight lines and have done such a good job opening up a chest without killing an animal. 
And you, I spent you, the night doing, you know, <laughs> hanging out with the vet and the horse and my dad. Now, now there are some dark stories in this book. But this one, I mean, this story for me was really powerful. Uh, I mean, listen up, people. Listen up. This is the kind of thing that happens to experiencers. It's not just memories of waking up on a table or being taken from your bedroom at night. I mean, I mean, that's part of it. Yes. But there's this, this other stuff, this mystical stuff. And these stories seem to play out like ancient fables or something. Now, I mean, I'm saying this partly because this has been at the core of my own research. These mystical stories, these outlying stories. And I'm at a loss to truly understand the why of it. I mean, why these things happen. People who are having UFO contact experiences tell these kind of stories. I, I, I'm, I mean, this is remarkable stuff. I, it's fascinating. I'm completely fascinated, but I don't understand it. Well, there's a lot of value of life. And this is what, you know, some of the more popular horror slash alien abduction people don't get is that there's a lot of reminding us to value our lives, reminding us to value our, our incarnations as human beings, reminding us to value other animals, reminding us to value our planet, reminding us to be grateful for what we have and to survive. And we as a species don't seem to be getting that message. We, we have been said a lot of messages like it's, it's not enough. You're not enough. You're not good enough. Um, and that's what exactly the message my mother was doing. No matter what I did, I was bad and I wasn't enough. And it really took an intervention of this kind to snap me out of it and say, you are enough. It, it is good. You do survive. Do comfort others. Even if you're in pain, have value for your life. Have value for your connections. It's very, it's very life-affirming. Very powerful. Yeah, I mean, the heart. I was very touched by that story. And now there's, there was other things. Now there's sort of a reoccurring theme within the book where people, your friends, your roommates, well, they would see things around you. And, and there's also like a reoccurring theme where your friends would, would kind of give the talk to you. They would basically say like, you know, like I'm lonely here. You know, I come from the stars. I, I come from the, where the flying saucers are. And I'm here and I'm lonely right now. And I don't fit into this world. And that is something I've been hearing a lot from, from people that I talk with. You know, I grew up in a community of experiencers and child experiencers. And, um, you know, we, we're not going to get too much into this, but one of these experiencers had a list of everybody that he saw on ships and he talked about them like elfin ships and he ended up unfortunately passing away during an experience and getting put back but we're not going to go into that because that could take all hour but that list well hold on let's just we're, we're, I'll, we'll address it a little bit and we're going to need to take a break here shortly but we'll have to address it a little more than that but i understand yes and that that was a a big part of the book and i don't want to give too much away for people who will read the book but uh the, the the pool of experiencers. And this was in high school or junior high school? High school. And elementary school. We had the we had you know, kids that I went all the way through school with and we're still friends with in high school. And then new friends that I made in high school were all like they were experiencers. 
Um, so, yeah. And have you talked with them recently, any of these folks? Actually, um, uh, Carrie, who the, she has a different name. She's also a medium now. I talked with her just before our phone call and I talk with her several times a week and her sister, um, uh, Emma, I talk mm-hmm, with them mm-hmm. and um, Wendy, I talk with her. She's a Facebook friend. Now she's interesting because she's very right wing Christian, but she's very open minded. But she's a she's a minister's wife in Oklahoma now. <laughs> so, um, so she's a big part of the book, but she doesn't like she's she won't go there. But Carrie and Emma, they totally. Uh, I I was afraid. I sent them the book and I said, oh, my gosh, this is going to be so terrible if you don't remember any of this. And they were like, no, no, I totally remember that. And remember this. <laughs> it was like, oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> you know, and uh, some of the people that we used to camp with and do 4-H with, you know, and the, the campground incident with the exploding sphere. I was like, do you guys remember this? And, 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 uh, Ma, uh, I forgot what I call her, but Ma Barry was like, yeah. And you were so scared. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, Oh, thank you everyone. Yeah. And it was, it's, this is scary stuff. This is scary stuff. Hey, I'm going to have to interrupt. We're gonna have to take our first break. We'll be right back. This is Whitley Strieber. I'm going to be attending two conferences over the next few months. The first is Consciousness and Contact at the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, July 18th to the 22nd. I'm going to be there with Yvonne Smith, Alan Steinfeld, Ananda Bosman, Kevin Briggs, and others. It's a small conference. But it is a very interesting one. It's going to include a traditional Lakota feast. I'm going to be talking about ascension and the afterlife based around my book, The Afterlife Revolution. There's going to be a breakfast and a trip to the Wounded Knee Memorial. There will also be a Sundance. Other speakers will be Cindy Ketches, who will provide an overview of Lakota spirituality. Alan Steinfeld, his research on hybrids, uh, remote viewing, developing multidimensional consciousness. Ananda Bosman will be discussing the 432 healing frequency and what it all means. Yvonne Smith We'll be talking about abductees. There's going to be a lot going on there. If you want to go, call Mia Ferroleto at 802-952-6217 or email her at mia.ferroleto at gmail.com. That's 802-952-6217 for Consciousness and Contact July 18 to 22 in the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. Then, on October 4th through the 6th, I'm going to be at the Portal to Ascension Conference in Long Beach, California, and along with a very large number of other guests. It's a big conference. Billy Jackson, J.J. and Desiree Hertak, Barbara Lamb, Jason Quitt will be there. Alan Steinfeld again, John DeSouza, Michael Tellinger, Ray Hernandez will be there, Travis Walton will be there. As I say, it's a big conference October 4th to the 6th at the Atrium Hotel in Irvine, California. Find out more at ascensionconference.com. Welcome back to The Unseen. 
I'm with my guest, Elizabeth Anglin, and we're talking about her book, the first part of a trilogy of books titled Experience, Memoirs of an Abducted Childhood. Just before the break, we touched on one of the more unnerving and frightening parts of the book. I mean, it was, I did not expect it. Like when that happened, I was thunderstruck reading the book. I did not expect it. But there was a fatality of someone in your high school circle. Or actually, it was the way it sounded was outside your circle. But there was a fatality of someone in your high school. And if you could talk about that. Well, yeah, he was outside my circle because he had, the moment he got in my circle, he recognized me from experiences. And so we were both in this gifted after school program uh, in junior high. And the first year uh, I was in it, I think I was the only girl in it. And then they let in more students the second year and he came in he was a year younger and he came in with that group and he would run around staring at me saying I've seen you naked on the ship remember I've seen you naked and I was like this guy's nuts and he keeps staring at me and he keeps telling people you've seen me naked and this is all sorts of bad and I got to get out of here so I left the gifted after school program and I never talked to him because he was a nutcase and then he became friends with um, Emma and uh, he was very good. He, she was, he and she were best buddies. They weren't girlfriend and boyfriend, but they were best buddies. And they did gaming. He did and she did. Um, but not, you know, at that time in Michigan, there had been a Dungeons and Dragons case. But there, it, it was nothing like that. But he and she used to talk about his dreams and what was happening with the elves who came on ships who were trying to save the earth. Well, he ended up being killed, but and I think he died because he was learning how to break the mind control and he happened to move the wrong way during a procedure and he ended up with a hole in his head and he was put back in his room naked on his bedroom floor with this hole in his head that was completely cauterized and there was no blood. Well, at that point, his dad, who was a sheriff's member, sheriff's deputy, freaked out. Uh, it went all the way to the top of the town politics, freaking out because you've got a kid at home in a sheriff's deputy's house with no gun, no knife in his room, uh, all the doors and windows locked, naked and dead with this very unusual wound in his head. And um, and a list of dreams and other kids that he's seen in these in, in what he's written down in his journals and his diary. And so they put those of us he 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 wrote about on watch because they were trying to figure out if he had been involved with drugs. Of course, he wasn't. And if somebody was going to try to kill us. And it was a big quiet for anybody who was on the outside brouhaha uh, in the town. And um, what ended up happening is, uh, you know, I was talking just at the same time, somebody tried to convince Emma to kill herself because she knew too much. And she was getting phone calls telling her to, you know, that she should kill herself. And and for whatever reason, this voice on the phone, which was kind of uh, non-gender and a little bit electronic, had this hold on her. She kept picking up the phone and listening to it. And I was about to do my homework and I heard a voice in my head, sort of like the one that told me to get it together, saying, call Emma, call Emma right now. 
And so I picked up my phone. I called her and I said, hey, Emma. She's like, yeah. And it was like, a really, you know, there was a pregnant pause. Yeah. And I said, what are you doing? And and she just blurted out, I'm holding a gun to my head and I'm about to kill myself. And I said, well, don't do that. You know, that's a bad thing, you know. And so we ended up talking, you know, pretty in hanging out for the next week. Well, in the course of talking and hanging out for the next week, um, we were both abducted from her house. And her dad was the um, assistant attorney general for the town. And he was on high alert because he had all the ins and outs of the case uh, of this boy who had just died. And, it, you know, they told people it was a suicide. It wasn't a suicide. Everybody who saw the situation knew it wasn't a suicide. Well, he had all the ins and outs and he was on high alert because Emma was all over the writing and, and I was too. So he has, we, they had this big basement with a semicircular couch that fit two people end to end. And we go down there to go to sleep and shortly after we go to sleep, he he sees lights on the lawn, hears noises in the house, gets up to check it out, and we're gone. And he goes to look for us outside. He goes to look for us everywhere. He ends up calling the police because he thinks, oh, my God, they've been abducted and they're going to be killed. And, you know, we wake up in the morning and we have and we're both on the couch and the next thing we know, we're we're being treated to this amazing breakfast, and everybody looking at us like, you know, but on bated breath, and him asking me a series of questions about what happened the night before, <laughs> about what happened while we were sleeping, and I'm going, I don't know, you know, we were asleep. <laughs> so, and then I get a phone call at breakfast from my dad who says come home now. And then I come to find out that there have been basically guys who said they were in the FBI, but weren't came and they took my journals and my writings. And there was this big brouhaha. And so all of this happened and it was never really explained, you know, what happened. It was just a really scary, frightening, dark, bizarre situation. There's more to it. And then it went away. Basically, you know, a prayed with a friend about it. And for me, it basically seemed to just go away. And then I went on with my life. And that, and now that was one of the other very touching moments of the book, the prayer with your, with your, was your friend's mother? Her, yeah. My friend's mother was into a course in miracles, but she was also Catholic and, you know, for, and I was Protestant and Catholics prayer is different. Prayer is divine intervention. It's miraculous. And course in miracles, prayer is miraculous. And so, she and I prayed to get me out of the situation to to make sure that I was safe and not threatened. And and um, I woke up in the morning after that prayer and I knew I was fine, that nothing bad was going to happen to me. Um, so it was, you know, a lot of this, it, if you have a spirituality, it becomes stronger because you see, feel, hear and know you're okay. You're going to be all right. You can be in a place of deep, deep fear and paranoia and, and, and terribleness. And then all of a sudden, uh, spirit for lack of a better world word can lift you out of it. And that's also in the book. And the, 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 all of that stuff is remarkable. Those, those, all those stories. And I have to give you a lot of credit, the writing, the way you wrote it and the way it unfolded. I mean, it was sort of like a, teen drama on one sense and at the same time it was it was genuinely 
um, unsettling. I just was, I, I was shocked at the number of experiences you had. Yeah. And that's not all. I mean, I, that's maybe 55%. I mean, and that, and somebody complained on Amazon that too many things happen. This can't be true. And I'm like, Oh God, <laughs> you know, and that, holding I mean... back, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so. Well, that's, so I worked on a, a project and I had to interview a lot of folks for this book project. And, and that was what I found. I mean, how to say this, doing this work. I mean, you, you must understand what I'm saying here. Doing this work means having phone calls and those phone calls are seven hours long. And you're just barely scratching the surface when you talk to people about their experiences. Now that you say that, that doesn't surprise me. But there was a, there's a wealth of stuff going on in this book. Well, I was I was going to say, you know, you didn't want to talk too much about Dr. Mack, but what we found out in the next book is he was someone who was willing to sit for hours and listen to each and every experiencer who came across his path. He would do long sessions of just listening and recording and taking notes, you know, three, four hours. He would do long sessions, long regressions, not, oh, we've got an hour and a half. Okay. And, you know, you just get into it and then he takes you out. No, he'd wait till you were done and he'd say, look, you're really strong. You survived it. You're still here. You know, and that's something you need to hear at the end of an experience. Look, you're going to be okay. Why? Because you survived all that and you did it again and you did it again. And you're all right and you're in school and you're functioning highly and you've got, you know, you've got all this other stuff going for you. So, but he took the time to get to, you know, he taught what he talked about with people was scratching the surface. But what he actually did was go really far beneath it because he was willing to sit and not just do one four hour interview, but 12, you know. I do know. I do know. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a therapist, but I do know. And that is, and it was for, for me when I was working on those, the book project, it was very cathartic for me to sit and listen to these folks and, and really be present and, and recording these things and transcribing some of the stuff. So was, you worked with Ma Dr. Mac for how long? Seven years. And we were still friends when he died. Um, but I, I stopped getting regressions, I think, in either August or September of 97. And I started working with him. And, um, you know, I first talked to him in January of 1990 and, and got my first regression in August of 1990. We are going to have to take our second break. For members, stay here. We'll be right back. For non-members, thank you so much. The first half hour will be ending, and we're just about to start the next half hour. We are back with The Unseen. My guest is Elizabeth Anglin, and we are talking about her book, Experience, Memoirs of an Abducted Childhood, part of a trilogy. Now, the the book, your book ends, the last chapter is pretty much meeting Dr. Mack. And, and that I love something that he said. He said something in your initial phone call. And you were very funny the way you said, he said, um, he asked, do you see this as a shamanic experience? And it was very funny how you answered it because I, I, I don't think I would have known what a shamanic experience was when I was, whatever, 23 or so. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't have an idea what he was talking about. I forgot how I answered it, but it, I kind of was like, oh, crap, say something that sounds like you know what you're talking about. Yeah. What do you think? So, uh, you know, long, pregnant, past due, needing to be induced, paused shamanic so, what the hell does he mean by shamanic i mean that was my brain was just going oh crap i was in conversation with somebody who knows words i don't <laughs> so this is this is like getting close to over 25 years ago that, that conversation how would you answer that question now 
Well, at that time, I said, possibly, <laughs> you know. Well, how would you answer it now? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, so why would you say that? Now, I'm this. I'm curious. Now, here's I'm going to just jump in. Like, I was trying to keep a little list of all the animals you ran into in the book. Like you were there were rabbits and owls and um, uh, a fox. There's an amazing story with a fox. You even have like a what seems to be almost like a. I mean, back to the shaman thing, it sounds like a shamanic journey of sorts. It was almost this dream realm with a pegamoose, like a half pegasus, half moose with a flying snake and a lot of animals. And now I'm going to ask you, like, why? You say, you say absolutely, this was a shamanic experience. Why do you feel that way? Well, I feel that way because, you know, the the most important messages and experiences are are couched like the the experience with the horse um you know the uh, of having the heart horses are great for heart the shamanic energy medicine of horse is heart it's about having the heart and the will to endure all of that is is part of that and then birds i have such a relationship with animals i always have and um to the extent that other, like, I felt bad because other people didn't get animals. You know, animals were always talking to me, whether or not I realized they were directly talking to me and showing me things and informing me. But shamanism is also, it's about our connections with, with everything that is. It's about our connection through spirit in the oneness of everything that is. And that's shamanic. And I'm, I'm, very cautious to sum up what shamanism or what's shamanic with a with a quick little two sentence definition because I think it's very personal. It's like saying you know like what is spirituality? You know, it's got that open ended quality to it. Well, it's the way of you know shamanism is taught whether it's modern shamanism. You know, you do develop these skills. You develop the ability to to see other dimensions, to find out the spiritual psycho spiritual sources of illness. Um, you, you know, you listen to messages from the universe through animals or for totem animals. Now, we didn't have, <clears throat> if I had been Native American, I would have had a culture with which to couch these experiences within and didn't. And so they were just weird things that happened with animals, you know, because no, I didn't gonna... come from that culture. Now, the way we met was I was working on a book on owls, and you had a couple of owl stories that I loved. And one of them, which you talked about briefly, this is going back a few years or no, I just, did you have little owls, like, that you could hold in your yard that would let you hold them? They wouldn't, no, I didn't hold them I, a lot, but I could go up to them, I could hang out with them, and some of them would, I could, uh, there was one behind the barn, and there was one in the apple orchard. So little, yeah, two, when you say owls, plural, little, yes, they were probably northern saw wet owls. Uh, but one might have been what's called an elf owl, which was the one behind the barn. I can't, I think he was some, but I haven't found anything called an elf owl. I think that might have been a euphemism or something. But um, this little elf owl behind the barn, I spent a few days with him. And I think he was quite young and he just wanted a buddy. But and then there was a, a pygmy sawwet owl that I visited with in the apple orchard. But they liked the apple trees. The apple trees were old. It was an old farm, and the neighbor's orchard was old. And but you know, listen, I would spend a lot of time developing that here, wild thing, don't be afraid of me connection 
I mean, I was the kid who was was waiting for the ducks to befriend me and they would always fly off just before I got to them. And I would spend hours trying to get birds to befriend me. So this wasn't like I'm, I'm, you, you said Snow White and it's like, no, this is, I'm really motivated. you know. I said Snow White in a, um, in, in one of our chat box things. I mean, chat you know, nobody else, everybody else is going to be inside watching Godzilla and I'm out, you know, befriending owls <laughs> and spending time on it. So, but that, um, but that's me, you know, I, I liked, I liked tadpoles and I liked, I liked bugs. I mean, I used to spend hours and hours just outside looking at everything that was alive. I'm going to jump to Dr. Mack a little bit, and this touches more to what will be coming out in the second book. Now, here I have to ask, when is the second book due out? <laughs> Two years ago. Um, so, <laughs> unfortunately. So, in my opinion, you're ahead of schedule then if you're only two years late. So. Two years. I'm, I'm only two years late. So the second book is actually now going to be the second and third book because so many people have yelled at me for separating the books up and not being done with the second book. So it was going to be three books, but it's going to kind of be two books in one. So the second book is Inquiry. It's about working with Dr. Mack. And the third book was about um, a, a rescue mission. Uh, but uh, we thought it, I thought it was we thought it was a rescue and retrieval mission. So we would have proof. Because at one point in the second book, uh, Dr. David Pritchard at MIT had said to me personally and then to everybody else, you know, the only proof that's going to fit is going to be if you find a crash disk that still functions with a dead alien inside. Well, that was that was arranged, <laughs> but it was 80 foot down in the bottom of a lake. And uh, the first group of ex- some of the first group of experiencers and I went for it. It didn't work out the way we expected, but so that's the third book. But the second book is really about working with Dr. Mack and overcoming the trauma and, and going through the Harvard inquiry and, you know, uh, meeting Dave Pritchard and having an implant that now we could look at and say, wow, that was, that was carbon made out of carbon 13 and it was rolled and it had this interesting braided structure. Oh, let's just back up a little bit. So let's talk a lot about this implant then. So this is from you. This is from me, and I ended up, it, it was the night after an experience, and I, we didn't have to remove it. It came out on its own, and Dr. Mack took it to Dave Pritchard at MIT because he had said he'd be interested if there was anything physical that came up, and this implant came up. And Dave Pritchard, he's an optics physicist, and, and he's not a Nobel Prize winner, but his student Wolfgang Ketterle is, and they worked on the same project together. So... Um, Anyway, he said he'd be interested in that, and Dr. Matt gave it to him, and he ended up sending it to the universe. Oh, here, let's just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up a little bit. Can you describe it? I mean, what were you, when you say an implant, what were It was a red wire that came out of the area and the corner, you know, in the corner of your eye, if you touch the bridge of your nose where it hits your brow, your mm-hmm. brow bone, it came out of the left side of that area and and um caused a tremendous headache what happened is i went through an experience i hadn't put it in right so it basically fell out on its own coming down the back this is gross but you know coming down the the drainage in the back and into my mouth and with a big glob of goo oh that is kind of gross okay it's re it was really it was significantly painful and gross but nobody had to cut into me to get it out um now here let me interrupt again was it orchestrated? 
so you could hand it to a scientist at MIT. I'm quite sure it was orchestrated so I could hand it to a scientist at MIT so that we could get scientists involved because I was working with a group of aliens that wanted disclosure and they wanted disclosure, you know, 10 years ago. And there, and as far as they were concerned, there had been an agreement that either the U S or Russia were going to do disclosure and neither of them were getting on it. And so all of a sudden a bunch of, in, in my understanding and from talking to people that I know, bunch of us were woken up at the same time in order to do disclosure and so oh you need this okay we want to get scientists involved to you know we want to give them just enough information so that they'll start looking into it and finding out about it and sort of cracking open that door without too much freak out yeah okay we'll help and that's what we were there to do that's the reason i came here that's what i was here for so and that's what the aliens were doing so yeah it was totally orchestrated uh, why, who woke up when they woke up, woke up, orchestrated. All of it was orchestrated. What about your book? Oh, yeah, I was supposed to write. I mean, I was always <laughs> a good writer. <laughs> I won a, a Detroit News, you know, honorable mentions, and I won awards as a kid as a writer. And my teachers would look at me and say, you're going to write. You know, I, I didn't have to take any English in college. I went directly to 400 novel writing courses. So, yeah, all of it. Me being me, me being a writer. Yeah. All of it. So Dr. Mack, I've I've met a handful of folks who have worked with Dr. Mack and I've been extremely impressed with the you know, the people who had worked with him. I guess I've had a, I mean I'm saddened beyond words that we lost him. And I'm looking forward to reading the second book just to hear the interactions between you and Dr. Mack. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you were one of if not the first, you were the second person to actually contact Dr. Mack? Well, I was put in contact with him. So Bud Hopkins put us in contact. The only reason I'd say I'm the second is because he saw Julia first. And then he saw me second when he was ready to start working with us. And he did her regression a few days before mine. But Julia and I had known each other from childhood. And um, according to her husband and people who knew her when we were young, we basically could have been clones or twins and we might be clones. We might be physical clones of each other, but we don't talk about that, but I'm talking about it on air because her husband saw me and she saw me and they both went, Oh, <laughs> and she remembered me from kids, but we never directly said, yeah, you're my clone, you know, but basically there's something to that going on. We're and, and so wait a minute. So this, that was the other person that was, that was the other person. She's 11 years older than me. And, and apparently we, we looked so similar at my age at 24 that um, her husband nearly fell over and fainted. That's, this is remarkable to me. This is remarkable to me. Now, listen, the, I keep, I use this analogy all the time. Like if I was a science fiction writer and I was writing this, or if I was like writing for the X-Files and I wrote this into a plot, um, you know, the, the producer would have every right to come into the script writing room and kind of go, eh, 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 a little too corny. That's a little over the top, you know, rein it in. Yeah, but, um, it, but, you know, given what was going on, we were both in the hybrid program. Um, my father was in the hybrid program. I think she was actually my father's daughter. I don't, you know, I don't know if we were clones, but I think we were basically siblings of some sort. So however you want to put that, because she looks like my dad too. <laughs> you 
Her dad's my dad, too. <laughs> you know? And is that her sense? Are you still in touch with her? I don't talk to her now, but that was her sense at the time was that there was a, a deeper familial connection. That And she was very kind to me. And, and um, you know, her husband would swear on it. He would swear we were twins. So, you know, take from it what you will. That's how I'll write the book, which is watch that guy's face. Watch him lose it, you know, Yeah. <laughs> which is... I don't feel like I'm her. I don't feel like, you know, we're, uh, she's definitely her own person. Her reaction to all of this was different than mine. I, I got a lot more trauma out of it than she did. She, she was like, Oh, they're not taking my babies. Those are her babies. I'm like, they're mine. You know, how dare they? So we had very different reactions to things. You're, this was, you're hit, you're throwing a lot of stuff in the soup here. I'm, I'm shocked at how much is coming out of just this one hour talk here. There's a story you told. This has to do with an owl, and I fully realize that I, I can't sidetrack too much of these things and get into the owl talk. But this is another remarkably beautiful story about the very first experiencer support group meeting that Dr. Mack had at his home. And could you talk about that? Sure. It was Julia and her husband and Dave Duclos, who's passed away, Steve Walski, who's passed away. So I can mention, I feel I can mention his name and their friend. And, and Dave and Steve had been in a group abduction experience up at a lake in northern New Hampshire. Um, Julia was, again, somebody who had the first regression with Dr. Mack. I was the second. And um, the friend was basically, he hadn't been there at the experience, but he just wanted to hang out with his friends. So we're all in this, you know, the first ever support group meeting. And people are talking about a lot of beeping and a lot of weird sounds before experiences and weird physical feelings and vibrations and humming noises and all of that sort of initial, you know, something's coming because you hear the hum or you hear the beep or you hear the, the, the 40, the 40 cycle washer, you know, whatever. So um, one of the guys, Dave Duclos was six foot four. He had a facial tick and he had a stutter. And his affect, his personal affect and his size and his imposingness was so frightening <laughs> that as we were leaving, he tried to give me a bear hug. And I was like, Ugh! you know, and we leave and we and and Julia and her husband are giving me a ride back to the train station because I'm going to take the train to the other to Somerville where I was living. And they um, they give me a ride. And while we're in the car, as we're getting in the car, her Julia's husband said, wow, you know, what do you think? Because Dr. Mack mentioned that we were part of a club now, that we were all in the club. And Julia's husband said, wow, um, you know, what do you think about being in that club? And I said, the last person we had seen was Dave. And I said, I don't want to be a member of any club that he's a part of because <laughs> he scared the crap out of me. And and as we're in, we're driving down the road away from the house, just after I say this about the club and not wanting to be a part of any club that that guy's a part of, this snowy owl flies over the top of the car and basically glides in front of the car down the road in front of us, you know, right over the hood for we don't it seemed like an eternity but it was probably just a few a second or two or three and we're watching this you know eight foot wingspan snowy owl gliding over the the hood of the car in front of us and then it peels off to the right into woods that are off to the right but it was right after i said i don't want to be a part of any club that that guy's a member of 
And um, Dave Duclos ended up being my very, very, very best friend in all the world in the course of all of this. So it was like prophetic and, you know, oh, you think you're not going to be part of a club? Look at this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's going to be a great club. But we didn't know that at the time. But the, the just the beauty of the moment, it was like everything stopped. So I couldn't forget that I said it because the second after I said it, there was this huge snowy owl, owl flying over the car. It's when I when I sort of try to unpack that story, the way I visualize it is that there's a the owl is on Dr. Mac's house waiting for you to leave. That's I, I have no way to prove it, but that's the way it feels. So, <laughs> you know, a lot of stuff happened at that house, which I'll get into some of it. But for you know, by the time it was over. Uh, and during the course of all of this, Sally Mack and John Mack divorced. And and some were saying that she couldn't handle the stress of everything that was happening at the house and things that are not my story to tell. So I'll just sort of lightly touch on them in the book. And here was that there were flashes of light. There were voices. There were things that were happening after and during support group and during sessions that got way far into the mystical slash paranormal slash what the F is that? Now, this is this is the first time I've heard this. Now, it does not surprise me in the slightest, and I, I actually almost expect this. So you're saying that, that there were, let's say, poltergeist mystical experiences in Dr. Mac's house, and that's he was using his own home for treatment, wasn't he? An office? He didn't have an office. It was his long-gone son's bedroom. And he wasn't ever alone with some, you know, experiencers in a bedroom and, and any of this stuff that you might say about anybody else being involved with experiencers as a researcher did not apply to him in any way. Uh, Pam Casey was always there. This is at the very beginning. There wasn't an office. There wasn't a place to go. And and it, it's a comfortable home. It's a big home. And he had a nice, great room to have support group meetings in. And when we got over 36 people, we had to find our own place to go. But, you know, initially it was just, you know, five, six, seven of us and it was no problem. But yeah, he was doing the work in his own home because there wasn't another place, but it was also, it was a good place. It was a good solid house. It felt like a safe place, but I don't think it felt very safe to Sally after a while. Now other things went on, but you know, but my understanding was it was hard on her, everything that was happening at the house. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is her home, too. Yeah. And now, so here's a, I have a question about hypnosis. As far as coming to terms with your experiences and, and the new information that arose through hypnosis, um, how would you weight the, the hypnotic experience, your hypnosis experiences, as far as, as part of your therapy with Dr. Mack? Really, really awesome. And and I went to somebody else before him and she bungled the crap out of it. And she really left me in a bad place because she got scared when the scary part came. She got scared and pulled me out. And I was way tougher than she was. I was way ready to handle the scary part. And yeah. and she and so she left me in a state of of half doneness. I was the half baked potato walking around having flashbacks the rest of the week of the scary part, not knowing what happened, which is, you know, not knowing what happened when it's something scary is worse than knowing what happened and knowing you got through it. Uh, Dr. Mack would take you all the way through 
what was happening and he would ask the right questions to make it not just traumatic, but also make it positive. He was, he was asking the right kinds of questions, but also reinforcing the right understanding. Look, you've been through it and you've already survived it. You can do this and you can get through this. Oh, and what would you say to someone who has like a, a strong opinion about hypnosis and feels it should not be used in UFO research? Certain people shouldn't be doing hypnosis. They're leading people. They're, they are reinforcing their own spiritual and religious belief system. They're working off of a storyline. They're implanting memories. Unless you are a high caliber person who knows how not to lead, how not to implant either even to suggest under hypnosis your own belief systems, your own storyline, you shouldn't be doing hypnosis. And there are too many people who are doing that this day. And I met, I've met experiencers that I know that I've been experiences, in experiences with who have had Im- storylines implanted and I'm peeved as crap about it, but I can't do anything about it. Storylines implanted by a hypnotherapist. Yeah. Okay. Okay. They've so gone not, so not. far down a a rabbit hole that is somebody else's storyline. I can't even, I can't even justify that. Uh, I I I mean, I, all I can do is go uh, 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 because there are it's 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 wrong. And having researchers who tell experiencers what to think. Oh, you're just a victim, and and they're bad, and they're trying to take over the world, and. And you, you just think you're not a victim, you know, that kind of stuff, too. That's wrong. There's all sorts of ethical wrongness that can happen that we were actually trying to prevent back in the day. And now it has happened. And there it is. And so but regression for experiencers when done correctly is awesome. <laughs> you know, so, okay, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. A double, so it's I, both light and dark. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's wonderful. <laughs> but when it's done correctly. And I ask because I've had my own experiences with hypnosis and, and I've tried it a handful of times. Nothing new came up. I basically told the exact same story that I remembered consciously. And, and I, um, so, you know, the, I guess the, the, the issue is that, um, people actually don't have a definition of what hypnosis is. I mean, I, we're dabbling with something that's very mysterious and I, I am very cautious. Yes, I think some stuff that shows up could very well be true and other stuff. And I just feel like it has to be treated very cautiously, the whole process. Well, the whole process has to be treated very ethically and very cautiously. But the other thing is, when you have screen memories, if you don't get through the screen memory, you can go down, you can jump to a conclusion about a storyline. Um, the other thing is, is look, John Mack, was a, he was a trauma psychiatrist. He was a child trauma psychiatrist. He knew what people's affects were when they had trauma. He, he knew how to listen to people. He knew how to hear and, and, and get a sense of a kinetic feel from them that they were touching on their actual trauma. Trauma is in the body. The body doesn't lie. And he knew from watching affects over years of trauma patients where the trauma was, what, and, and the sort of the the truthiness of it there's a word he used verisimilitude something like that so he loves big words <laughs> he loves big words but the truthiness he you know he would explain it as the truthiness of it and other people wanted to discredit him for his knowledge base of truthiness in terms of affect in terms of trauma no this was a guy who knew what 
trauma looked like, smelled like, sounded like, <laughs> you know, and when it was true and when it was just, I want to whine and I want someone to listen to me, you know, and so I'm going to make up a story. He could tell in two seconds if you were BSing about your pain and whether it was a true pain or a traumatic pain or just you having a bad day. And he had no time for you having a bad day. You know, he'd get to the, he'd get to the end of your bad day in two seconds with psychiatric technique. Okay. Finish next. What, what yeah. do you want to work on? You know? <laughs> you know, so, but a lot of people are out there now doing things that have to do with, uh, it's religious cultism. And we were warned about that. There was, um, a, a gentleman who spoke at the MIT conference, he said, you really have to be careful that this doesn't become a religious or a healing cult because it's so possible for this to happen. And I'm looking at what's going on now and I'm like, wow. And spirituality, being a spiritualist isn't necessarily being a cultist. It's having a worldview that's different. But when you ha- attach that to a storyline um, or different storylines that have to do with a religion, then then you're getting... And you have certain people who are in control of that information, then you're getting into a cult like situation that's not good. So you were you were at the Alien Abduction Studies Conference at MIT and that would have been in the late nineteen uh, nineties, correct? Yeah, early nineteen ninety. Oh early. Oh my word, that's right. It would have been that much earlier. Um and what was that conference like? There were uh, all of the researchers that they could possibly get in one room. Um, presenting uh, a talk like you do at an academic conference and some experiencers, myself included, and uh, and um, some therapists slash researchers and, and Dave Pritchard who used his ability to use MIT facilities and his name to get the word out there and his wife, Andy, and John Mack and... Um, A.C. SETI person and Bud Hopkins and then just a bunch of other researchers, a psychop guy who said it was all a witch hunt. Um, Baker, I think was his name. But but Barbara Lamb, all sorts of people were there. Wow. So, sounds remarkable. Yeah. I, I don't know how in depth you want to go, but, um, you know, we went over the abduction experience, we went over evidence, we went over psychology of abductees, uh, people's hypotheses, uh, ethics and therapy and investigation, and, you know, what should be considered next. And then after that happened, like everything just went kaput. And it's like the field, because there was such an attack on Dr. Mack, everybody ran for the hills, basically. Because in 94, when his book came out, he really got attacked, but as of 1992, he wasn't really attacked in the, by Carl Sagan or in the media or anything like that. So everybody yeah, was and, very hopeful the, at that point. It was all very yeah, hopeful. So the research got stunted, though the experiences, you know, kept on happening. Yeah, that's a dark chapter, and and I know there was a, there's some talk of making a movie about Doctor Mac's life, and I hope that happens, and I hope it happens in a way that's respectful, and because it's a dynamic, engaging, you know, drama, you know, his his story. Yeah. Hey, this has been great. I want to thank you so much, and I will follow up when the next book comes out. Yes, that would be wonderful. I I loved speaking with you, and um, thank you so much for having me on the podcast you're very welcome you're very welcome it's been a delight 
This is Mike. I am chiming in at the end. Hey, you know what I forgot to do? I never did the thing that you're supposed to do at the end of an interview like this. I never asked Elizabeth, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, so I'm going to put it here. So if you want to find out more, you can go to elizabethanglin.com, and the last name is spelled A-N-G-L-I-N, elizabethanglin.com. You can get her book on Amazon. Uh, the title is Experience. The subtitle is Memoirs of an Abducted Childhood. And on her site, right across the top banner, it says Psychic, Spirit Medium, and Animal Communicator. And uh, we've had some private conversations about her animal communication stuff. It's quite fascinating. I apologize we really couldn't get into that in the interview here. Her book is excellent, and I'm really looking forward to part two and part three. And when those come out, I would love to talk to her again and do another formal interview. Oh, and one more thing. I need to thank Lauren Cutts for the eerie music you heard at the beginning and again here at the end. Uh, he mixed that, and it features Andrea Villiers on the gong. And if you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.